Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Good morning, church. My name is Michael, and I am the lead pastor here, and I'm glad to see so many people here today, especially knowing that many of you uh, may be visiting to be part of baptisms today, which is always such a fun celebration, and we'll be cheering and clapping and having a good time. Uh, We'll do that at the end of our service. Um, Before I get started, I want to mention something really quick. Um, We've done in the past a few years ago, this month of August, reading through Proverbs, um, and so I'm going to be doing it um, this, this uh, August, and simply uh, 31 days in the month of August, and there's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, so read one chapter a day, and uh, Proverbs is best digested in small chunks. Um, so I want to read that, and I would invite you to join with me, and I've got on Facebook and Twitter, I want to take every day uh, just a brief uh, one proverb and post a reflection about it. So if you'd like to join me, I'd love to, love to have you do it with me. Right now, we're in a series in the Gospel of Luke, and we're at the section of the book where we've reached the trial of Jesus, the trial of Jesus. This trial is going to result in the crucifixion of Christ. And so, the Jewish authorities have conspired with the Roman authorities to commit the greatest injustice that has ever taken place. Crucifixion is the most ruthless and cruel form of execution, and it's going to be performed on a perfectly innocent and righteous man who also happens to be the Son of God, God himself, God in the flesh. And so in the trial that we're going to read about, we're going to hear the consistent testimony that Jesus was completely innocent of anything wrong. We're going to hear that from uh, several times repeated over and over. And yet, everybody in the story um, had, everybody in the story was complicit in seeing it forward. Everybody allowed the injustice to proceed. You have the Jewish council, you have Pilate, you have Herod, and you have the crowd. They were all uh, seeing this continue, and nobody did anything to stop it. They allowed it to continue. And so, they were all culpable for this injustice. They all played a part in the killing of Jesus. They all had blood on their hands, you could say. And yet, this was God's plan from the beginning because Jesus came for this very thing. Jesus came and was born to die. He was born to be a sacrifice for our sin, to be an atonement for us. And so this is not something that happened uh, by mere happenstance. This is not merely a miscarriage of justice. This is the plan of God for our salvation. And so he laid down his life so that we could become sons of God through faith in him. So that's what we're going to look at today. Let's dig in. We're, in, we're going to start in Luke 22 and then carry over into Luke 23. We'll start in Luke 22. We're going to read, let's start at verse 66. When day came, so the, the previous night, this is, the, this is, Jesus was up all night. There's the Passover, there was the prayer in Gethsemane, there was the arrest and betrayal of Judas, there was the denial of Peter. All of these things happened the previous night, and so Jesus was up all night, and now day came. The assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and the scribes, 
and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it, from, for, we have heard it ourselves from his own lips. The accusers were the Jewish leaders, the council, the Sanhedrin, and they're driving an agenda here, but it's going to become clear that they don't have a case. They really don't have a case to make against Jesus. The accusations themselves were of a theological nature. They're asking, are you, do you claim to be the Messiah? Is that who you think you are? And they're accusing Jesus of blasphemy. The answer that Jesus gave was cryptic, but it was clear enough to confirm their suspicions that, yes, Jesus was indeed claiming to be the Messiah. And so as far as they are concerned, Jesus has committed a capital offense. He was a blasphemer. He deserved to die. Simple, straightforward. But they did not have the authority to carry out an execution. They were under Roman occupation. And so to execute Jesus, they would need permission from the Roman government. The Roman government would have to be on board. So they're going to bring him before Pilate and try to get Pilate to co-sign the execution of Jesus. Let's pause here for a second. There's a, um, a text in the book of Matthew that gives us the motive for what the, the council was doing. So if you look in Matthew 27, verses 17 and 18, it says, so when they had gathered, now this is jumping ahead a little bit in the story, but it's relevant here. Pilate said, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. The Jews killed Jesus because of envy. That was what was driving them. Jesus was better than them, right? Jesus was better than them. So let that sink in. The envy within them is what drove them to murder. He was the one they envied. And Jesus himself, was, was, uh, they envied Christ. So if you were to give envy a definition, it could mean the grief or anger that is caused by another person's success. It's a very common sin. In fact, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bedrock layer type of sin that drives a whole lot of other problems in the world. So the Jewish leaders, they were the ones with clout, right? They were the ones that were in charge. Everybody looked to them for leadership. They were respected. Everybody looked to them to give, them, to give the answers. And then Jesus came along and exposed them. He exposed them for their hypocrisy, for their duplicity, for their greed, and they hated him for it. There's nothing they could do because he was better than them, and it was obvious. So rather than connect the dots and recognize, hey, this is the Messiah, we should yield to him and follow him because he is, he is the one who should truly be leading us, they were blinded by their envy and their hatred for them. They couldn't worship him because they wanted to be him. They wanted what he had. They wanted his power. They wanted his influence. The Ten Commandment tells us, you shall not covet. That's envy. You shall not covet, in, in the Tenth Commandment, your neighbor's house. 
or your neighbor's wife or anything that is your neighbor's, it goes on to say. And that's envy. Envy is an, an inordinate desire for something that is not yours. Something God has blessed another person with that you wish you had and you don't. You envy that person. And that envy stokes hatred towards that person. And it could be anything. You could envy, as the Tenth Commandment says, your neighbor's, your neighbor's house. Could be your neighbor's job, your neighbor's appearance. You could envy somebody else's body. Just think about how, how much that has become an issue in our culture where people envy the body that they don't have. They envy someone else's body and they want it for themselves. And so they'll even surgically change, mutilate themselves to have somebody else's body because they envy something. Somebody else's uh, appearance, somebody else's marriage. Somebody else's husband or wife could envy somebody else's children that, you know, seem to out, you know, surpass your own children in some way. You could envy somebody else's intelligence or their talents. You could envy somebody else's vacations, things that they get to do. Envy causes discontent to go up, and it causes gratitude to go down. Bitterness settles in and hatred grows. All of this is a constellation of issues that happen whenever we envy. So if you see envy in your life, that's sin. That is the sin that led to the Jewish leaders crucifying Jesus. They envied him. So if you see envy in your life, it's time to confess it, repent. But you can fight it with gratitude. Gratitude is, is the kryptonite to envy because it is, it is the very opposite of what envy represents. It represents a thankfulness for what you have, what you've received that God has given to you. So the more envy that you see in your life, the more you need to be giving thanks. Give thanks for your, for your little house and your beat-up car and your, your body that you're not happy with, whatever you'd want to change about it, your... your your puny income, whatever it is that you envy in someone else, give thanks for what you have, even if what you have is, is relatively small compared to other people, because there's always going to be somebody in the world that outclasses you in some way. It's unavoidable. That's just the way God has distributed his blessings across the earth. Some people have a greater proportion, and that is God's choice, and that is not our place to judge how God has has allocated and given his gifts to people. So give thanks for what you have. Gratitude is key to fighting envy. Well, let's, let's keep moving. We're now in chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. So the company of the Jewish leaders, they said, we've seen what we need to see. We just need to find the authority from the Romans to execute Jesus. So they bring him to Pilate, who was the governor. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, 
saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Let's pause again. So the Romans, they don't care about Jewish blasphemy laws. That's, that's, your, that's your religion. That's, that's your all's problem. Don't bring, that, don't bring that problem to us. So they don't, they don't care about that, the Jewish blasphemy laws, but they did want Jesus dead, and they're really committed to it. And so they need to bring a charge before Pilate that would get Pilate's attention, right? So they bring a more serious charge. They accuse Jesus of sedition, of, of, uh, of plotting a, a revolt against the Roman government. So they present Jesus as this political revolutionary, this Che Guevara kind of guy, you know, who's going, to, who's going to fight back the system and, you know, overthrow the government and be that kind of guy, just supplant Caesar as the king. But Pilate, he's not stupid. You don't get to be where Pilate is and be a complete moron. He could easily see that the Jewish leaders were using him to dispose of an enemy, And so Pilate was content to let their plan backfire on them. It was obvious to him Jesus had done nothing wrong. I mean, he he said it himself. Verse 4, I find no guilt in this man. Now think about this. Pilate is the highest authority there. He is the guy that has the power to guilty, not guilty, within within himself. He could could declare it. And since he said, verse 4, I find no guilt in this man, that could have and should have ended the matter. The judge has declared he's not guilty. He didn't do anything. And it's important for us to notice that this is the Roman governor. This is, be like the, like Governor Mike DeWine saying, uh, no, this, this person's innocent. I mean, it's like that is a man of that sort of power. And he's saying, this is an innocent guy. So it should carry a lot of weight that he said it. And that is important theologically because we're getting multiple attestations of the innocence of Jesus. We have a Roman governor declaring Christ is innocent and righteous. That's a part of the the theology of the innocence of Jesus, that he was a righteous man. And even the Roman governor, who had no interest in the matter, is saying he's righteous. So Luke makes this obvious. Jesus was perfectly innocent, completely righteous in every way. But the Jewish leaders, blinded by their envy... Their hatred, their disgust for Jesus, they weren't satisfied. And so they amount what essentially is an appeal. They keep pressing the matter. They, they won't let it go. They keep pushing it forward. And so whenever they mention Galilee, that's where Jesus was from. And that gave Pilate an idea. Herod was in town. Herod is the guy that's over. Herod was a lesser ruler. And Galilee was his district. So he's like, Herod's in town. He's just across the way. Let me let Herod deal with this problem. I'll send Jesus over to Herod and let Herod settle the matter because this, this is a Galilee thing. Let them, let them handle it. So the, the complaint was to let him deal with it, so he sent Jesus to Herod. The issue with Pilate is his ambition. Pilate killed Jesus because of his ambition. This problem with Jesus and the Jewish leaders had the potential to derail his career. 
Pilate was an up-and-coming leader. He was a rising star. And the area that he was overseeing of Palestine, it was considered a proving ground that could often be a stepping stone, a launching point towards a bigger appointment down the road. But it was a difficult assignment, and it still is, to be honest with you. It's a difficult assignment to rule that part of the world. But if you can succeed in Palestine, then presumably you could succeed anywhere. But if you fail, your career is toast. And so Pilate here has the potential of either accelerating his career or being, having his career fall apart before his eyes. He could be stuck there with nowhere to go. So how he handles this situation is really key. He's already been on record that Jesus is innocent, right? But the Jews aren't backing down. So now he's, he's got a bit of a political issue here. Because the Jews influence the crowds, the people, like the, the, the massive population of, of the area were Jewish people, and they looked to the Jewish leaders for their, they take their cues from them. And so if the Jewish leaders say the word, and they stir up a crowd, and they get everybody amped up, that's a significant constituency that you don't want rebelling against you, because they can make, they can make a significant problem for you. So they could stir up a riot. Or worse, they could stir up a real insurrection. But since Herod was over Galilee, and Herod was Jewish, Pilate could pawn the problem off on him. Well, let's see how Herod handled it. Verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. He's looking for a magic show. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. What's going on here? Herod was glad to receive Jesus, looking to see, uh, hey, can you, can you, I got some water here, can you turn it into wine? What's the uh, Jesus Christ walk across my swimming pool, the Jesus Christ superstar? Can you walk across my swimming pool, Jesus? Can you do some cool trick? I heard you do cool tricks, show me one. And so he was, he, he wanted to, to, to Jesus to entertain him like a jester, to, to make sport of him. So Herod, he's an awful dude. I mean, Herod was the guy that had John the Baptist beheaded, but he was appointed to the post by the Romans. So he wasn't getting any answers out of Jesus, and so he decided instead to have some fun with him and get his soldiers involved and let them entertain themselves at Jesus' expense. They dress him up in kingly, splendid clothes, mock him, spit on him, treat him with contempt. And ironically, the shameful treatment of Jesus by Herod became the basis of reconciliation between he and Pilate. He and Pilate became friends by, uh, after, this, after Herod treated him this way, which may not be obvious on the surface why that would mend fences between these two guys. But here's the thing. Herod did Pilate a favor. We've already seen Pilate did not want to execute Jesus. Pilate thinks Jesus is innocent. He's already said so. He's already declared him innocent. The Jews then are insisting that that, uh, that Pilate execute him. 
So what, what Pilate is thinking is that he'll send him to Herod, and then Herod mistreats Jesus. He humiliates him, and that mistreatment of Jesus should have appeased the Jewish leaders. I've given you your pound of flesh, guys, that we've, you know, we've, we've mistreated Jesus, we've mocked him, we've humiliated him, but he's an innocent guy. What more do you want? So Jesus was publicly mocked and humiliated. The Jews get vengeance on Jesus. Herod does the dirty work of actually giving the order. Jesus gets taught a lesson. You don't mess around with the Jewish leaders or something worse can happen to you. And Pilate looks like the good guy. Win, win, win. Everybody goes home. That's what Pilate's thinking. And so Pilate and Herod, that reconciled them. Pilate's like, hey, thanks for, thanks for humiliating Jesus that way. You kind of you took some heat for me. That'll protect my career. And uh, you've... You know, you gave the Jews what they wanted. You see what I'm saying? It's like it, it, it helped them to mend that relationship. So all he needs to do now is call the court back into session, reconvene, formally announce the verdict, and send everybody home. Verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Once again, he says the same thing. I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod. So you have Pilate saying Jesus is innocent, and Pilate saying Herod found him innocent too. Everybody that you've, that's examined Jesus don't, does, hasn't found any problem with him. So Herod sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. So Pilate publicly testifies. And testimony was a big deal. Because they didn't have videotape. They didn't have audio recordings. They didn't have deep fakes. They just had testimony. So and so said it happened. So when Pilate says this, that's huge. He's giving testimony from the highest official in the land. Jesus is innocent. Herod concurred. But just for good measure, let's go ahead and punish him. Let's give him a good beating so Jesus will learn never to do this sort of thing again and he'll go off quietly and, you know, disappear and not be trouble anymore. So Pilate is being very shrewd. He's very smart. He's shown himself to be reasonable. But now comes the real test. But they, now they, they that's the Jewish leaders. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. So this dude is guilty of of an actual insurrection that actually happened and for murder. That's what Barabbas did. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. Don't miss this. And their voices prevailed. 
So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. The tradition, you release one prisoner per year at the start of the Passover feast. They demanded the release of Barabbas, a condemned prisoner who was found guilty, who was convicted of murder and insurrection, and so now Pilate is torn. He knew Jesus was innocent. He knew Barabbas was guilty, and so he's resisting. But the crowd is pushing him. The Jewish leaders, they know Pilate is weak and ambitious. If they just keep pressing, they can wear him down, and they can get their way. If they just shout long enough, if they just create enough havoc, if they just protest a little longer, eventually he's going to get so stressed out that he's going to give in to their demands. So Pilate was the one, we can't miss this, Pilate was the one who had the authority to render the verdict here. And he's already rendered the verdict, but it was not good enough. I mean, like, he, was, he had a mob demanding their own vigilante justice against the man that they envied. But he had the power to make the call. He knew the right thing to do. He had already shown himself willing to, to release Jesus and declare him innocent. He wasn't confused about Jesus' innocence. He was already clear about that. His failure was his cowardice. He caved to the mob. He let the mob shout him down to get him to go against his conscience and to actually release a murderer and an insurrectionist and condemn a righteous man. But just think about the power of the mob And what a mob can shout us into, the sort of compromises we can make by the demands of a mob. An irrational, crazy, insane mob can take an otherwise reasonable guy and get him to violate his own principles, his own morals, his own conscience. Verse 23, their voices prevailed. Verse 24, He decided that their demand should be granted. This is the worst decision of his life. Verse 25, he did it. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. He released this guy. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Pilate executed a man he knew was righteous. Pilate freed a man he knew was guilty. This is the textbook definition of injustice. It could not be any clearer than Pilate paid for it with his soul. He did it to please the crowd. He had the power to protect the innocent Innocent, but instead he placated an angry mob. A fickle, irrational, angry mob. C.S. Lewis famously said that courage is not its own virtue. Rather, courage is the form of every virtue at its testing point. 
So courage doesn't exist on its own in a vacuum. Courage is the form that every and any virtue can take when it is tested. So we read right up to the very end of the story, and it looks like Pilate's a decent guy, right? But he looks like a decent guy because he's not, he's not really being tested significantly. Sure, I'm sure he's, I'm sure he's had to deal with, with people that disagreed before. But Pilate seemed like he was genuinely afraid of what the what the mob might do. He was genuinely afraid of dealing with the consequences of not caving to the mob. And so whatever seemingly reasonableness he might have had broke, and the crowd broke it. He was a coward. And his cowardice exposed him as not being a virtuous man at all. You know, it's always troubled me reading through the creeds, the Apostles' Creed, suffered under Pontius Pilate. When, when I read this, I'm like, Pilate is somewhat, seems like a sympathetic guy. I think it's because I've, I've missed the cowardice of Pilate. I've missed just the gravity of what he did. It's like he, he condemned an innocent man when he alone was the guy that had the authority to bring justice and to prevent this sort of thing from happening. He failed his post. He failed his nation. And he failed God, even though he wasn't a believer. He failed God, and he paid for it. But the angry mob showed, him what, showed everyone what he was really made of. He was a weak, cowardly, ambitious man who was willing to have an innocent man condemned to execution in the most cruel fashion, because it was expedient for him, it would advance his career, it would settle the mob, it would calm things down. We live in an age of the irrational, angry mob, do we not? People get afraid, they get anxious, people get worked up emotionally. Individual people can be warm and friendly, and kind, and caring, and wonderful. But an angry mob can be lethal. Angry mobs have a psychology all their own. The herd mentality consumes all of the individuals within it as it picks up steam and accumulates more people like a snowball. Emotional thinking takes over. People get caught up in a moment. They react out of fear of social ostracization. One week earlier, what were the crowds doing? One week earlier, they were crying, Hosanna! They were welcoming into Jerusalem. They were celebrating the arrival of Jesus. He's the Messiah. And now one week later, the crowds are shouting, Crucify him! Kill him! Because the crowds are fickle. The crowds are an angry mob. And it short circuits our ability to think and to reason because of the pressure of the crowd telling us what to think and the cost of doing anything that opposes the crowd. Angry mobs can form in a number of ways. It doesn't have to be a, a large gathering of people shouting in unison. It can be friend groups. It can be email threads. It can be group chats. It can be social media. It can take any number of forms. And angry mobs bully people into submission, using social pressure to punish those who don't conform. 
And then people get caught up in the moment. They're scared. If I don't go along, if I don't say this thing, if I don't cave to what they want, it's going to go badly for me. So I'll just go along with it. People are afraid to stand alone. People are afraid of what others might say. And right now, it seems as though our whole society is acting like an angry mob. And a lot of Christians are scared, and they're tempted to join in. They're tempted to cave and to join the mob, and it's shouting, whatever it is that they're wanting. And the temptation is to call evil good and to call good evil. That's our temptation. We're tempted to invert the moral order because that's what the angry mob wants. The angry mob, the energy, the spirit of the angry mob is anarchy against the most high God, against the moral order. And they're demanding that everybody conform to this inversion. And the people that are most likely in their sights are the ones who most want to uphold the moral order, and that's us. There's pressure on us. You don't stop an angry mob by caving to its demands. You stop an angry mob by standing up to it. Just like any bully. You stop a bully by standing up to a bully. Yeah, he might hit you, but you stand up to him. You can't cave in to what the bully wants. And so in our day, what we need are lion-hearted Christians who have the courage to say, enough of this madness The courage to trust God and his word, to trust the goodness of God's ordering of the world, the courage to stand alone, to promote that which is good, to oppose sin. And here's the cool part. Courage is contagious too. Just like the madness is contagious, courage is contagious. You find one that stands alone. And the one that stands alone takes the arrows but he inspires others. And somebody out there thinks, you know, like, I disagree, but he's making sense. Or maybe, you know, I agree, and I'm glad somebody's saying it. It sure as heck not going to be me. But somebody else joins in. Yeah, he's right. This, is, this, is, this isn't right. What's happening? And then one turns into two. Two turns into ten. Ten, ten turns into fifty. 50 turns into 500, 500 turns into 10,000. And now you have courageous people that are saying, no, we must honor God. We will obey God, not men. So friends, whatever influence God has given you in whatever arena, fear not. Take courage. Take a stand for Christ. We'll make one final point. Even though we see how the Jews and Pilate and Herod and the crowds all conspired to kill Jesus. And of course, they're all responsible for their actions, right? The Jews, Pilate, Herod, the crowds, they're all responsible for their sin. They're all accountable to God. But they merely demonstrate a simple fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, do they not? That includes us. I don't know what I would have done if I were there. 
It could be that I would have been in the crowd shouting crucify him. I don't know. What I do know is that I'm capable. I'm not above that. I'm not immune to that. None of us are. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we are no better than them. We are sinful. We're rebellious. We are wicked. We are unjust. There is not a single righteous man or woman in this room, not even your babies. None of us are righteous. We are all fallen short of the glory of God. But here's the thing. Jesus is not merely a victim of injustice. Jesus freely and willingly laid down his life for our sake. This was why he came. And in the providence and the sovereign hand of God, even though the individual actors are accountable for their actions, this played out according to God's sovereign will. And here's why. 2 Corinthians 5, I'll read these two texts and we'll be done. Paul says this, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And then verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, he, meaning God the Father, made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the crazy justice of God's grace. God did not set aside justice to forgive us. No, God satisfied justice at the cross in order to forgive us. So that our sin was laid upon Christ. The penalty of our sin was laid upon the Son so that we could be forgiven. So in this chapter of the Bible, we haven't even got to the crucifixion part. That'll be next week. Something spectacular is playing out in the, in the cosmic, spiritual, unseen realm. All the human actors in this story are caught up in a superhuman, cosmic drama of redemption. The evil principalities and the powers in the spiritual realm are just starting to get a taste of victory. They could smell it. They could taste it. They know that once he is nailed on that cross, it's theirs. They've won. They have overthrown the true high king. And they have, they have claimed the earth for themselves. They think they can overturn the father's authority whom they despise. And so the injustice of this trial, the crucifixion that follows, is setting the scene for a cosmic showdown where everything that they expect to happen is turned on its head because it is the victory of Christ that was secured at the cross and in his subsequent resurrection. This ancient conflict between the serpent and Eve going all the way back to the garden is about to converge at the cross. And what the, these evil powers could not possibly have known or foreseen that the release of Barabbas was just the beginning he was just the first criminal that happened to be released at the condemnation of Christ. When the truth is, a countless multitude of prisoners would soon be set free from the darker dungeons of sin and death. That's us. We are insurrectionists against the Most High God, right? We are Barabbas. 
And so the angelic realm is shouting out for the release of the prisoners for us whenever Jesus went to the cross knowing that this would be the thing that would secure our redemption. We once were enemies of God, but we are freed in the death of Christ. So even as we consider in the, in the in next week the crucifixion of Jesus, what we are considering is a momentary defeat, what seems like a momentary defeat, but was actually the moment of triumph when the release of prisoners was announced in the resurrection or the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. The Charles Wesley hymn sums it up. This 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 one line from the hymn. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done, for your death on the cross, for your sacrifice. We thank you for enduring the cross, despising the shame, and that you're now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We thank you that you did all of these things for our sake, that you who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. We are so undeserving. Forgive us, Lord, of our envy. Forgive us of our ingratitude. Help us to rise, go forth and follow you in the victory of your resurrection. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.